0: All right, here we are. There is Moxie the cat running away with her toy, and that's probably all you'll get to see of her today. The first question, though, let's launch right into it, right? That's what I like to do. The first question we have today for the 20 questions with Pastor Mike comes from Facebook, and I said I would pick one question to deal with, and I picked the one from Cindy Johannesson. And it says, hey, Mike, I've been asking this question a few times, but but unfortunately have not... Has not, it has not been the one chosen to be answered, so giving a shot here. I have several friends still in the whole Word of Faith, NAR, etc. movement that I'm st- still recovering from, although praise God was not as deep in. Please explain how the scripture, let me move my head out of the way, Isaiah 53.5 is correctly interpreted. Okay, here's the question. Especially with the, with his stripes, we are healed, which they use in support of divine health and the idea that we are never to be sick or claim even symptoms of disease, etc. So long. uh, Sorry, so long. (laughs) Thanks so much. Be blessed. Okay. The question is, right? Like, how do we apply this idea of by his stripes, we're healed? Um, Another way to put this question is, is healing, physical healing that affects me today, is that like in the atonement? Is it part of the cross? So when I say by his stripes we're healed, is that, does that mean I can I can say you will be healed as I'm praying in faith that you're going to be healed? You will be healed because of this verse that says by his stripes we are healed. Is that about physical healing? And my answer is going to be a little bit complicated. Okay, so let's let's walk through some of the texts of Scripture, and we'll uh, we'll get into it in detail here. Um, the first one, of course, is Isaiah 53 verse five. So let's just look at that. all right this question uh, this verse says but he was pierced for our transgressions he was crushed for our iniquities upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds or by his stripes we are healed now this is in the context of isaiah 53 one of my favorite chapters of the entire bible i think a lot of people would say that this beautiful passage uh starting in isaiah 52 i don't know verse 10 somewhere in isaiah 52 moving on through all of isaiah 53 just amazing messianic prophecy. It's all about Jesus on the cross, right? That's what it's specifically about. And it's like, he was pierced, right? He suffered because of my sin. He was crushed. He was destroyed. He was killed because of my, my iniquities. The chastisement, the punishment that brings us peace, that was on him. And of course, with his wounds, we are healed. Now at the surface level, you might think, well, hold on, this is talking about spiritual healing. This isn't talking about a physical healing. But it seems like in the Hebrew mindset that this the two weren't like, diametrically opposed to each other, okay? So when they're talking about physically being healed, spiritually being healed, being forgiven, being restored physically, they are including these things kind of together, okay? Whether, now, I'm not a word of faith preacher, but I, I think that um, those of us who are not word of faith or are not sort of that hyper-healing mentality, we sometimes miss some of these passages that the word of faith people are, are really harping on. Now, some people say, harping on, I don't mean that in a derogatory fashion, but the ones that, you know, that, they're, that they tend to focus on. Now, there's another place in the New Testament where this verse is quoted, and it's in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. Oops, let me get you guys there. 1 Peter 2, 24. And the question here we're going to have is, in the New Testament, is this passage quoted as though it is um, uh, as, as though it's about physical healing? That's the question. So let's look at it and look at it in context. Is it about physical healing? My answer here is going to be no, but let me walk you through it. 1 Peter 2.24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. What's the context? He quotes, by his wounds, you've been healed. This is him quoting Isaiah fifty three five, but it's not in the context of physical healing. He bore our sins on his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. The healing is the spiritual, um, well, I, I use the term spiritual very loosely here, right? The healing is the, is the relation of myself to bondage and and punishment of sin right i'm forgiven of sin i'm freed from its bondage that i might live forgiven uncondemned and i might live free from the power of sin in my life that's the healing that is being spoken of in 1st peter 2:24 now that might answer the question and so we say well healing is in the atonement and <laughs> hold on you just she's she's having fun i just want to show you guys the cat cuz i may have I may have sprayed catnip on the chair just to coax her into <laughs> getting up there. what are you doing kitty there you go anyway there's 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 moxie there she is there she is anyway um sorry just she's my cat anyhow um <clears throat> So healings in the atonement, at least uh, we're talking spiritual healing, to use the term loosely, right? The, the Bible doesn't often use the term spiritual in that sense. That's a very much modern English way of use, using the term, but forgiveness of sin and forgiveness from the bondage to sin. Now, Matthew 8 uses this verse as well. Isaiah 53, Matthew 8 uses this passage, Isaiah 53, 4, actually, but it adds a whole different thing that kind of throws a monkey wrench into the into people like me who might be inclined to say... Physical healing's not in the atonement. I, I I think Matthew chapter 8 refutes that. So Matthew 8:16 says, That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. Okay, so the context here is Jesus healing people physically. And it says this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. That's in the same context as Isaiah fifty-three five. <clears throat> this is the overall work of the Messiah. His work on the cross is he takes our illnesses, diseases, our sin, our guilt, our punishment. He takes all of that upon himself. And it's evidenced in Jesus, you know, that he successfully did this, a, a proof of this. <clears throat> Not the total fulfillment. If you want to see how Matthew uses the word fulfillment, I literally have a whole video on how Matthew uses the term pleroma or fulfill. And I encourage you to check it out if you're interested in understanding how he does prophecy. Um, but the Isaiah passage, it means it means this, guys. It means that it's it's a whole story. The whole story is here, right? He bore our griefs, carried our sorrows. We esteemed us stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. So it's I got my sin. I also have my my physical issues, my griefs, and my sorrows, and the things that have afflicted me. I have all of it dealt with through the cross. So what I'm saying is, uh, I think physical healing is in the cross. And I'm here, it's going to sound like I'm agreeing with with the, the hyper charismatic movement, but I think that's just, I think they're right on that point. The, the healing is in the cross. Here's the thing. It's both. It's, it's physical and spiritual. It's all there. And you could say, well, no, no, Jesus did physical healing when he was physically on the earth, but on the cross, he did spiritual healing and that's separated. But I don't think that that's what the text is doing. I think the text is quoting a cross-related passage and applying it to Jesus physically healing people. So then... They're together. So here's where I'm going to disagree though with the people that you you talked about in your question. I think that it's a timing issue. If we look at all the things in scripture that are included in the cross, it's a lot more than physical healing and a lot more than forgiveness. Let me give you a list of the things that we get from the cross and you will quickly realize we don't have them all fully realized today, right? They're about future promises. So they're purchased in the cross, but they're not all fully realized present realities today. So we get eternal life, That's right, eternal life. Am I living an eternal life? Well, I'm going to physically die. So I don't have eternal life in its fullest capacity right now. I don't, and I never hear these preachers just claiming that Christians can't die at all. (laughs) Well, rarely, occasionally they joke about stuff like that. Uh, But for the most part, they won't say that because they realize that that's a future reality, even though it was purchased on the cross, I don't get it yet. Never dying is a, is a future reality I get through the cross. No pain, no sickness, and no suffering, re-revelation, right? There's no more pain, no more sickness, no more suffering. These things are purchased by the cross, right? But I don't see them as a reality in my life today. I see them as a future promise. Okay, so what about healing? Could healing be in the same category? It is sometimes a reality today. It is definitely a guaranteed future reality for us, just like, uh, just like eternal life, just like no sickness, no pain, no suffering. I see total victory and freedom from Satan and from his kingdom, but I don't have that. I'm not experiencing that today, but that's a thing that was purchased on the cross. Also a resurrected body, a resurrected body, a new glorified body that was purchased by Jesus. But I don't hear anybody in these, in the the hyper charismatic, that the people who I think, I, I think that a, a large part of them have the solid gospel of Jesus Christ. I think they're affirming the truth of scripture but I think that they go overboard on an issue here related to spiritual gifts and healings. And here there isn't a balance. Healing, we're going to claim, is a, is a present reality we fully experience today. Everyone gets healed. Everyone should get healed. There's no reason why God would, in his will, want you to suffer so that you might grow and learn and glorify his name even through pain, which is a biblical idea. But that is is set aside. And instead, there is the idea that you're going to get... This, 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 thing that was bought at the cross, you're going to fully gain the benefits of it today, but then they ignore a bunch of other things that were bought at the cross, right? Because if I'm going to say Jesus bought it, therefore I get it today, then I need to say that about everything Jesus bought, including a resurrected body. So why, why aren't we having services where hyper charismatic groups get together and they pray for glorified bodies to be their to be their pr- present possession, glorify my body right now, Lord, let me be in the glorified body because they'd realize it's a, it's a later thing. There's there's present promises. We get down payments on our salvation. That's occasional healings. This is the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, the indwelling of the Spirit. But there's a future sense in which I'll have a deeper relationship, a tighter relationship with God. And that was all bought on the cross. I just don't see the full reality of it. So now we have in part and then we'll have in full. So sometimes people get healed. Sometimes God does that. Uh, But just because it was bought at the cross doesn't mean everyone gets it right now all the time. I hope that that answers your question. That's my perspective on it. On one hand, I'll agree with the word of faith preachers that healing's in the atonement. On the other hand, I'll disagree saying that not everything that's in the atonement is going to be a present reality for every believer or is expected to be. We're still in a season where we have the down payment, but not necessarily the fulfillment of everything. All right, let's go to the next question. And by the way, I'm Pastor Mike Winger. This is 20 Questions every Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific time. It's California time. I do this thing where i try to answer your questions try to give as biblical of an answer as i can i don't know the answer to every question i'm not going to pretend i do and you don't have to pretend i do either but i'm going to try and give you the best answer i can and i found that answering questions is something the lord's gifted me at um at least sometimes (laughs) and so it's a good thing to do for the benefit of others Uh, the next question here is from molly thompson and well hopefully i'll get through 20 maybe i'll do what i did last week and do like a lightning round at the end if it starts getting tight uh, Molly asked the question, hi, Mike, love your content. Could you explain why Old Testament sacrifices and offerings were seasoned with salt? Is there a spiritual messianic picture or element? Thank you for all you do. Oh, that's a great question. And scripture actually directly answers that question. So let me take you there. Um, we're going to look at... Mark nine forty nine, 49 and I actually have a, a, a study going through this passage in Mark I've taught through it not too long ago and you could go find that on my channel on the Mark series which will have a playlist and yeah that I would I would um, uh, recommend if you're interested but here's a, a verse where Jesus talks about this he says everyone will be seasoned with fire and, and he's talking about judgment here. Um, and every sacrifice will be seasoned with salt. Okay, so Jesus himself referencing the thing you're concerned about, Molly. Salt is good, but if the salt loses its flavor, how will you season it? Have salt in yourselves and have peace with one another. I think that the salt in yourself and peace with one another, that that's talking about um, godliness in your life and relational like forgiveness that you give to other people. Forgiveness is central to the Christian life, to discipleship. And when I say forgiveness is central, I don't actually just mean me being forgiven by God, but I mean my attitude of grace and forgiveness towards others is central in Christian discipleship. And that's part of what it means to be salt. So salt comes in and it preserves products and it increases flavor. Those are probably the two primary things that we get from salt, right? It preserves things and it increases their flavor. And being salty in the biblical sense, not in the upset gamer sense, um, being salty in the good sense... Is that idea of, yeah, I'm offering grace, I'm offering forgiveness, I'm offering kindness to others. I am being a disciple of Jesus Christ in my character. That that would be, I think, what being salt is all about. So yeah, taking that that sacrifice, adding salt, increasing the flavor, making it's like I'm not just a normal person, I'm a person following Jesus. I'm not just it's not just steak without salt, it's steak with salt. It's like, oh, new flavors in there because of the salt. And that would be godly character. So there you go. I, I think that's the uh think that's the conclusion there lovell martinez has a question we are told to have a large amount of faith but jesus said faith as small as a mustard seed can move mountains what does that mean in terms of faith that's a great question okay so here's my my thoughts my two cents on this and for you to consider okay i'm not i'm not the guru of the bible um but i'm a a christian and pastor who spends a lot of time studying it and thinking about it so here's something to think about um Jesus, when when they ask Jesus, um, increase our faith, right? Because he's like, hey, you know, have faith. You can do these things, have faith. And they say, well, increase our faith, Lord, because they feel like they don't have enough faith. His response to them is, and I'll use an old song, you don't have to have a lot, just use what you got. (laughs) It's this old song that we used to sing at my church, you know, faith, 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 just a little bit of faith. You don't have to have a lot, just use what you got. And it would go through the list, joy, 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 just a little bit of joy. You don't have to have a lot, just use what you got. And I think that that's actually the application. I think that song summarized it well. Jesus is like, hey, you don't need to have an increase of your faith so much as you need to access what faith you have and you need to use it. That means, uh, among other things, that faith can be something that exists in the midst of other things going on in your life. Faith can feel like something you have a small amount of and to know that that's enough if you will choose faith because i do believe faith involves a choice because faith is a in a personal trust commitment i trust lord i trust you i trust your word um i trust your goodness i trust your power and i choose to trust and and if you've ever had someone where you heard maybe a, you heard bad news about somebody and you thought you know what I, I that news sounds bad and that sounds like they did something wrong but you know what i trust them i'm just gonna i'm just gonna wait and trust them i'm just gonna trust that was like that decision of letting that like mustard seed of here, faith in a person, influence your position, your attitude, your approach to them. I think it has to do with that. So don't worry so much about trying to increase faith, although I understand that, that, that impulse and I feel that myself, but rather to use faith. Faith is like a muscle. You use it and it grows. Lavelle Martinez, there you go. Uh, Mahit has a question and says, is it biblical to sign a marriage contract before you marry someone? Um, I, I think that I would answer this more generally. And, and obviously, okay, so I live in the United States and I don't think we have marriage contracts here that I'm aware of. I mean, if, if we do, they're very rare. Mahit, I'm guessing from your name that you're probably in India or somewhere else like that. And there you, you may actually have like, a, maybe your culture has marriage contracts. Um, is it biblical to sign them? I think that contracts in general are not based on on is this contract okay is that contract okay they're rather they're based on the principle of, of somebody giving their word and honoring their vows and so yes you can sign a marriage in principle you can sign a marriage contract and you should stick to it now that's in general rule now it might be that you're asking people to sign marriage contracts and it's a foolish thing to sign and, and here's where scripture also comes in so not only does it say keep your word and that a, a, a righteous man keeps his word even to his own harm Right? I promised I'd be there. I'll be there even though it's going to hurt. But there's another side of the story, which is do not be quick to give your word. Evaluate, consider, think if this is a wise thing to do. So never sign a contract unless, of course, this is a thoughtful, wise, good decision to make. It's something I want to be bound by. But if you have signed it and you're bound by it, then, then it's something to be honored. So in principle, there isn't something inherently wrong with it. Um, it's just a, probably a different cultural expression of, of how marriage works in different places. Fated princess has a question. If you had an abortion, would it be hypocritical to stand against it? And would it be um, hypocritical to have a baby afterwards or even thought to be able to deserve a child afterwards? Good questions. Okay, so fated princess. Let's, let's do with these one at a time first question was, if you've had an abortion, is it hypocritical to stand against abortion? Well, let me ask you this. Let, let's put this shoe on another foot. Let's ask the same question about a different issue. And the issue is going to be racism. Let's suppose that um, I was like a horrible racist, horrible, horrible racist. And I, uh, just to separate a little bit from our current issues we're dealing with nowadays, because I'm, I'm just drawing an illustration. I'm not trying to make a point beyond that but let's say that I was just racist against Chinese people. Like I just hated Chinese people and I was really hurtful to them. And as a pastor, I had abused them and I wouldn't let them serve in ministry. And I'd done all these things. And then I reformed. I saw the error of my ways. I realized we're all of one blood. This is so ungodly and unchristian. Every ounce of my bitterness of racism was, was part of me rejecting the truth of Christ. I mean, I, and I feel so horrible. And then I get up from the pulpit and I start preaching and teaching that racism is bad. Even using my past example, Against myself. I go look at how bad I was. Here's what I was thinking. I can't believe I did that most people Would probably say Mike It's wonderful that you've reformed and you're one of the best spokesmen now against racism because you used to be a racist It gives you a sense of credibility in people's eyes when you talk about the issue, right? I used I changed my mind. I used to think this now I think this now it gives them a sense of credibility most of us would look at look at me in that scenario and say he's a great proponent against racism he's it'd be like a former kkk member coming out and speaking against racism and you're like yes let's get this guy on stage here's my point if you have had an abortion and now you see the evils of it and now you want to speak speak against it you're actually perhaps in a better position to convince people to change people's minds what would be hypocritical is if you spoke against abortion publicly and you privately were continuing to have abortions that would be hypocritical but your past doesn't make you a hypocrite if you've changed anything you've done in the past but you've changed you reformed you've reformed, tra- you've been transformed you're not a hypocrite you're 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 someone who can tell your story someone who can make a difference in other people's lives uh, absolutely your second second part of your question was um would it be hypocritical to have a baby afterwards Absolutely not, right? Because if you if abortions, it's imagine this: like if I committed a murder in the past, and then I see someone on the side of the road and they're dying, and I and I save them, and I think, is it hypocritical to save a man after I have killed a man before? They're like, no, of course not, right? This is a good thing. This is an absolutely wonderful, good thing. Having a baby would be fantastic. Would be beautiful. Would be wonderful, and something to totally celebrate. Nothing hypocritical about it. Um, What would be hypocritical is to have another abortion. And then the last question was, or should I even think that I'm, that I deserve a child after all that? And the answer here is, is going to be complicated, but maybe I can try to make it simple. Um, Parents don't deserve children anyways. Like they just don't find a godly parent, find a wonderful parent. Like they don't deserve their children and the children don't actually belong to them in that real sense. Like they're a responsibility for a time. But it but I think kids are God's grace to us. They're God's grace regardless. And your whole life, I mean, if you have forgiveness at the cross, you're forgiven. You're forgiven. One of the things God does, along with telling us how bad our sin is, is he removes the guilt of it from us. Like it's gone. You're not guilty anymore. You're not you're 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 not guilty. You're officially not guilty. You you're clear of your sin because Jesus has paid for it. And so do you deserve a child? And in a sense, no does anybody not really and are you forgiven yeah so go for it i think that what you're probably really struggling with here or the person you're representing here is struggling with is the the leftover guilt of sin in general right the shame and the guilt of sin and in this i want to encourage you that shame is only meant to be temporary you then come to the cross and he washes it away and he lifts your countenance, Scripture talks about, right? He lifts your spirits because you know you're forgiven. That has been dealt with. That has been forgiven. I can now stand before God. This is where Hebrews tells us that we can boldly come to the throne of grace, where we may find grace and mercy to help in time of need. Notice it didn't say humbly, actually. It said boldly. Not, not arrogantly, but bold, because boldness implies confidence. I know I can enter into God's presence. This is where Ephesians 1 tells us, that he has made us holy and without blame before him in love. So if you are in Christ, you are without blame. Yes, you did that. Yes, you sinned. Yes, you blew And it was horrific. And it is forgiven. And it is completely dealt with at the cross. And now you should move forward as one who looks down and sees that you are as clean as he has made you clean, not as clean as the sins of your past. All right, Arvin Marlow has a question and says, uh, what does the Bible teach? And by the way, here's a quick alert. If you're a parent, you've got like a kid, a young kid watching, you may want to pause this video. You may want change to the, change the video if you have to or, or move your kid out of the room for a minute because this is going to be an adult question. All right, Arvin Marlow asks, what does the Bible teach on masturbation? And um, I've, I haven't done like a, a real thorough teaching on this topic. I've had it asked many times. but Let me give you my thinking on this. Um, the Bible doesn't directly, in my opinion, doesn't directly address masturbation anywhere. I don't know of any place where it's directly addressed. And so that's why the question's there. It's like, well, what, what about this? Like, I read the scripture, I don't see a direct addressing of the issue. Now, that doesn't mean that the Bible leaves us in the dark. What it might mean, and I'm going to throw out a theory here, what it might mean is that the issue is complicated, and so a straight, I'm going to be honest here, a straight yes or no answer, a straight sin or not sin answer is inadequate, because the issue is complicated. So what, what does the Bible, what the Bible does address in detail are issues that are related, that, that touch on the issue that we're talking about today. Issues that end up influencing our attitudes about masturbation. And so let me talk about some of the issues that are related. So one of them is lust, right? One of them is self-pleasure and self-seeking, like a like being given over to um, carnal focused motivations, right? So like well, I'll, I'll explain them in more detail, but those are a couple of the issues. And another one is going to be marital fidelity. I'm going to talk about that too. That's really going to apply more to married couples, but it will apply to single couples in a different fashion. Okay, so the issue of lust. Um, most people will probably say that they don't know how to separate masturbation from the issue of lust. And if that's the case, then it's a no-go, right? I know I'm being super plain here. This is, this. I'm being very straight with you guys on this issue, but I, um, I think there's, I don't know how else to talk about it except being really, really plain. So, so the issue of lust, if, if there's a, if there's a lust boundary being crossed, then do not cross that boundary, regardless of what behavior you're doing while you cross it. Okay. And I think that that um, deals with a, a lot of the issue going on today. In fact, I would say this, that there are those who feel like they struggle with masturbation. What they really struggle with is lust and they start the whole lust process early on. When they start seeing images that they, they, they like, maybe they didn't want, they didn't ask for those images to be put in front of them, but they just kind of saw them around or ideas. And then they go and they start searching for them on the internet. And the issue of sin has already been going on for like an hour or, or 20 minutes or three days or whatever before the masturbation takes place. And when you focus on masturbation as the sin, you actually get your target off. You need to focus on lust, uncontrolled lust, yielding to lust. That's the sin issue that we got to deal with and fight. And I think that that will give people clarity who are struggling with that. That's the lust issue. So as much as lust overlaps, now, hypothetically, let's say that masturbation could take place with no lust being involved. Okay, well, maybe that, well, let's just say it passes the lust issue. Okay, hypothetically, on to the second issue. (laughs) It makes me a little uncomfortable even talking about it. But I think that for Christians to think clearly, maybe it helps us to talk super, super straight. Um, what was the second issue I mentioned? Um, so there was lust and then there was, oh, what was it? I had it all organized in my brain real quick there. There was something else I mentioned. Maybe someone in the live chat could help me out. There was something else. The second issue. Um, oh, okay. Self-gratification. It's the, it's the basic idea behind the problem with gluttony. The problem with gluttony, um, the problem with seeking excessive pleasure in life is that those pleasures become your idols to you. Okay, so excessive pleasures is like, I don't just want to play a game for a little bit. I'm going to play it for way too many hours. Okay, that's a type of like gluttony. I'm not just going to enjoy food. I'm going to enjoy too much of it. That's a type of gluttony. And and the idea of getting overweight is not the actual main issue here. The issue is the idea of my heart being yielded over to, um, to, to fulfill cravings beyond what is appropriate. And so here we have an issue where you've got to ask, and since the Bible is not clear on this, on masturbation, I don't think it is, then you have to ask, okay, is this like a, is this crossing a line with, with a pleasure issue? Like where I'm just ex- seeking excessive pleasure. And I don't know if that has to do with cutting it off entirely or cutting off a certain degree of it. And I think that would apply more to single people than married people, to be honest, because that brings me to the third issue. And the third issue is marital fidelity. In marriage, your, your sexual desires belong to your spouse they belong to that person. Okay. So as a single person, it's one thing to say, okay, I am I mean, hypothetically, I could see there's a case for this, like that I'm engaging in this. Oh, I'm married guys. Just, you know, but hypothetically, I engage in this behavior on, on rare occasions. It helps to calm me down and I don't do it lustfully. I could see a place for that. I wouldn't rebuke a person for that, but in marriage, I feel like it's different. I think that 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 this behavior in marriage, masturbation, takes away your sexual commitment to your spouse, your need for them, and you should need them. They should be the one that, that fulfills your needs. And this is what scripture talks about. Ma- sex in marriage is beautiful. It's wonderful. And it's to be protected. And so in marriage, I think it adds another layer of issue that you want to um, deal with. So those are my thoughts um again to summarize i don't think the bible clearly talks about the issue directly so i'm applying biblical principles that seem to fairly simply apply to the topic of masturbation and i am open to the idea that there can be among single people a degree of masturbation that is not sinful in particular single people and and i and i don't know for sure these are my two cents Totally interested in your guys' pushback and your comments and your thoughts on this. I have never heard somebody, in my opinion, deal with this issue well. So these are my thoughts. Um, I'd love to hear someone else talk about it and be able to learn from them as well. But it seems like nobody does. <laughs> so uh, Lasix 97 has a question. And now the kids can come back in the room. Uh, do you share the opinion that we shouldn't ask God to heal diseases, but instead speak over the sick person as we have authority over sickness? Should we do it like Peter in Acts three six? Okay. Let's see here. Let's go to Acts 3, 6 first. It says, then Peter said, Um, here, I'll back up just a bit to give people context. So they were on their way to the temple. Peter and John are on their way to the temple. This is after the death and resurrection of Christ. The Holy Spirit has been given and the apostles are now preaching the gospel and healing people. Uh, and, a, and there come to the temple and a certain man, lame from his mother's womb. So he's been paralyzed his whole life, or at least maybe not totally paralyzed, but unable to walk from his, from birth, whom they laid, um, he, oh, he was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called beautiful to ask alms from those who entered the temple. See this potential spam. I just want you guys to know these, these like spam blocking or spam noticing software is just the best thing that cell phones have ever done bye <laughs> all right anyway um they laid him at the gate of the of the temple which is called beautiful to ask alms from those who entered the temple who seeing peter and john about to go to the temple asked for alms he's just he's a beggar and he's a understandably a beggar he's living rightly so off the generosity of others because he has a legitimate um incapacity that is not be, and his needs are not being met in some other way so here's the kind of guy you want to give alms to Kind of beggar you want to give a handout to, someone who's on the side of the road and they're begging because they're because they're trying to feed a a drug habit is a different category. But this is the kind of guy I want to I want to help. All right, verse four and fixing his eyes on him with John Peter, with Peter said, "Look at us." So he's like, "Look it up," which which shows you the guy's like not even looking. He's just asking for help. He's not even looking at them. So he gave them his attention, expecting to receive something from them, thinking he'd get money. Then Peter said, silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Then he takes him by that right hand, lifted him up, and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. So he leaping up stood and walked and entered the temple with them, walking, leaping, and praising God. And so this is a beautiful story of healing. The question we have, is it, is it a model for us to follow in and be careful with how you hear me here. In every situation, and there's nothing here to tell us one way or the other. It just tells us this is what they did. It doesn't say this is what you do. So th- this could be the leading of the Holy Spirit. It could be a, a unique moment. You know, Peter's giving being given wisdom by God. That could easily be the case. The passage by itself, Acts three six, doesn't give a prescription for this is how every Christian should reproduce healing. It should be by saying, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, get up and walk. And I never, let me just also add something. I've never seen the apostles fail at these proclamations. Yet those who often try to imitate them fail all the time. And they will try to find a way to spin it, to feel good about their failures. But I I think that that's an indication that they're not being led by the Spirit. Because if you're being led by the Spirit, when you say to someone, get up and walk, they're going to what? They're going to get up and walk. You're not going to have to walk through failures over and over again. So let me read your question one more time, Lasix. Um, Do you share the opinion that we shouldn't ask God to heal diseases? And my answer there is is no. Um, I don't share that. But instead, speak over the sick person as we have authority over sickness. And I don't think that I have all this authority over sickness in and of myself. I don't think I just walk around with that authority. So... I think we should pray as people who have more confidence and more, um, more faith than what we generally see from people who aren't interested in healing, but who have less, who don't have the perspective of the, of the, of the, we always get healed people. I think their perspective, generally speaking, is imbalanced. It's imbalanced because in my perspective, and I'm going to talk a little bit about this uh, next not this, not two days from now, but a week after that. Um, I guess it'll be a Monday for you guys. Monday after next on this topic of healing and, and, and how right is Kenneth Copeland is kind of going to be the topic of the study. And, and we'll get into more detail on that. But I also believe confidently, I have faith, like James 1 says, that God is in, working in the midst of my suffering and he's working in the midst of my pains and working in the midst of my hardships. And so there's an element of that where I pray for wisdom and I say, Lord, I want the wisdom to know that you're working even when I'm not healed. So yeah, I pray, I think we should pray hopefully and confidently, but not necessarily trying to fabricate beliefs about people getting healed. And then pretend like it doesn't matter when you command 20 people to get up and maybe one does and 19 don't, and you're going to act like it doesn't matter. And that's what they do constantly. They act like it doesn't matter. If the apostles there at the temple stood, said, I'm going to give you what Jesus, would, what I what I have in the name of Jesus, get up and walk. And the man did nothing. This would have counteracted the gospel message. Somehow Peter knew this would happen. And it was always consistent so show me a ministry that says everyone gets healed and they consistently heal everyone and I will just want to learn their ways but none of them are like that in fact they almost have their own PR department to try to only show the healings that happen and try to work around the ones that don't and that shows an inconsistent Christianity Uh, Leonardo Borges or Borges says what do you think of denominations are divisions okay, and can multiple factions of Christianity be legit? Well, I, I, I want to say this. Um, d- think of denominations as being two different kinds of things. So a denomination, think of it like money. Uh, there's, there's different denominations of money. There's a $100 bill, $50 bill, $20 bill, $5 bill, $1 bill. These are different types of bills, different denominations, but they're all money. And they're all authentic money. A $1 bill is as much real money as a $5 bill of, say, United States currency. But then you have counterfeit bills. And those counterfeit bills will look similar to the the proper denominations. And yet they are not real and you can't use them as currency and they're they're counterfeit. And this is kind of like that with denominations in churches. Um, A denomination, just because there's a Baptist here or a Presbyterian here or whatever on the other side, it doesn't mean that they're not Christians. And it doesn't mean that they aren't in substantial agreement about the truth of the Christian faith and about the central doctrines of Christianity. So what we have here in denominations a lot of times is just variations, slight differences within the Christian camp. Sometimes, however, what we have is a counterfeit. And that is when we would look at them and say, you're not just a denomination. You're, you're also an alien group. You're not a Christian group. And sometimes over years, denominations, especially older ones and some of the mainline ones we have nowadays, they slowly move from being another denomination of Christianity to sometimes being invaded and the wheat comes in amongst the terrors. And eventually you're like, are they even Christian anymore? They're denying central tenets of the faith and they become more of a social club. That being said, I don't care how many denominations there are. Okay, these guys over here, they baptize infants. These ones don't. And there are different denominations because of it. But this is a, a secondary issue. This is not a central issue of the Christian faith. I have an opinion about it. I have teaching on the topic. Uh, don't, I don't baptize infants. But, but they're still my brothers and sisters in Christ. These are secondary disagreements. It's not that big of a deal to have de- denominations like that. However, when they start abandoning the gospel of Christ, it's a very big deal. So if they deny the resurrection of Christ, they deny or deny the uh, the inspiration of the Scripture, uh, the authority of the Scripture. They deny these things. Then I start to say, well, you're a different kind of denomination altogether. At that point, um, so Cody Skinner has a question. What are your thoughts on apparitions of Mary at Fatima and messages given to the Shepherd Children? All I know is this, Cody, um, that that Catholics, um, in particular make a really, really big deal of all the things I've ever heard as far as modern proofs for Catholicism outside of like the councils and history. Usually you're you're having discussions about history at that point. But a more modern, I mean modern considering the scope of the church history, is this the whole stuff at Fatima. This to me is something I haven't looked into. Um, I know they make a huge, huge deal about it. It's very like blown up, like, look, Mike, we've got witnesses, multiple accounts, we have healings, we have all these kinds of things going on. Here's the problem. The problem is this. As a a Christian who has read scripture and has read the Old Testament and the New, right, I understand that once I have the word of God in place, a later confirmation of someone who's doing healing, after I know I've got God's word, it could actually be demonically inspired. Now, I'm not saying Fatima was because I haven't looked into it. I'm just saying that hypothetically, I have three options with Fatima. I have, it wasn't really all it's made out to be. I have two, it was all it's made out to be. These witnesses, they show that this was like really miraculous work and therefore it was God. And so we should believe the Marian dogmas and we should all be Catholic. Or three, that there are lying signs and wonders. And so there could actually be miraculous things Uh, Not prophecy. I think God preserves prophecy for only himself, true prophecy. But there could be signs and wonders that are lying signs and wonders that are there to test you about whether or not you will trust in what God has revealed in his word. This is consistent in the Old and the New Testament. So for this reason, Fatima, I've got two good options for for not having it convince me to be Catholic. Moreover, I have the clear teaching of the word of God that Catholicism, I believe, violates on several points. And a distortion of history where things are and i have you know I'm, and, and you guys catholics out there like i know i have several catholics that watch my content i am definitely not trying to bash you i just genuinely believe that catholicism stands on the foundation of the true church but then it is really just a little piece of it that developed over time and ended up claiming authority over everybody And then adding more and more doctrines and theologies and teachings that are inconsistent with the scripture. And in response, they say, well, this was all secretly known to the apostles and it was all taught by the church leadership and it was all known by the church fathers. And that worked until like the late 1800s, early 1900s, when we started all getting access to the church fathers. And now that that is falling apart. And now they're saying, well, it's doctrinal development. It was in seed form, which basically means it wasn't really there. And we've added a whole bunch of new novel doctrine over the years that's all I got to say for that for today. Uh, John Butterfield says, what is the witness of the Spirit mentioned in Romans 8.16? Is it an experience like John Wesley's strangely warmed heart? How do you obtain the witness if you don't think you have it? Thanks. All right, let's dig into this. This is a great question. What is the witness of the Holy Spirit? Romans 8.16. And the question I think we have honestly for ourselves is, do I have this? Am I experiencing this? Can I identify it? Well, the verse actually answers it for us. Um, and let me say this. If you grew up in a more Pentecostal background, you may have the impression that the witness of the Holy Spirit is something like a emotional filling or like a warm heart um, or actually Mormonism uses the term burning in the bosom. I don't think any of those is accurate. I'm not saying the Holy Spirit can't do that, right? Obviously, you're, you have a real relationship with God. He can warm your heart. Of course, other things can warm your heart too, um, right you, I've watched commercials that have warmed my heart or or perhaps something bad can warm my heart even but that's not what this verse is talking about Romans eight sixteen, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit not our emotions our spirit that we are children of God this is the witness is that I am a child of God now bearing witness is not an emotional thing primarily bearing witness is imparting information I'm giving you witness I'm 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 going to tell you this is true and that is it's primarily a truth statement that our spirit is comprehending by the work of God's Holy Spirit and the truth statement is I'm a child of God so let's let's read a little more context to get more details if you did not receive the, uh, for you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear but you received the spirit of adoption by whom by whom I by the spirit by the Holy Spirit I cry out Abba father that relational cry to God where I'm like God I now I know this very deeply personally right because there was the time when I was not saved and when I became saved one of the biggest differences was my relationship with God and it wasn't just an emotional thing I thought that that was like a secondary benefit sometimes my emotions are there sometimes they're not it was a sense in my spirit that I am now a child of God and that I can cry out Abba father and I think that the Lord imparted that to me by his spirit so what is it? It's an awareness. It's a, it's a statement of truth that you know you're a child of God. And so then you cry out, Abba, Father, a relational father relationship with God. So I don't think it's an emotional thing, although it will impact your emotions to varying degrees at different times. It's primarily a truth. You are a child of God and it is God's spirit internally that's telling you, I am his child. Now, does that mean that you always 24 seven have this full awareness that you're a child of God, that you feel it at all times. No, I don't think so. And I don't, and I think we obsess over our feelings more so than most generations before us, right? We're very feelings based. This is a truth statement. I know I'm a child of God, right? I have the awareness that I'm a child of God. Sometimes I feel all kinds of things that I'm aware are not true and that's okay. Uh, Dallin Bird has a question. What is the best way to study the Bible? Start it in Matthew or start from Genesis? Thank you. I would recommend, um, read one gospel, read the book of Acts. I mean, Matthew, Mark, um, Luke or John, and then read, and then read the book of Acts. So you got the, you got, you got the ministry of Jesus, the death and resurrection of Christ. You have the beginning of the early church book of Acts. And then I would just plow through, um, in particular, the book of Romans, right? Then, then maybe, I'm just gonna give you a, a map, okay? <laughs> my, my two cents. Then maybe the book of Hebrews, and you'll have a ton of questions, You'll be like, wait, what, what, what? And then you start your Old Testament study. And why not read through the whole Bible there? Now, it's also good to be reading Old and New Testament at the same time. So maybe you maybe, you're, maybe you start your Old Testament study, Old and New, and you're kind of plowing through Genesis and Matthew at the same time, and then Exodus, and you're, you're like moving towards Mark. And, and there's plans online that will help you with that sort of thing. But the thing is, I'm giving you Jesus, the early church, Romans, the theology of the church, and then Hebrews, the integration of the Old and New Testament. Those are some recommendations. I do not recommend you just read the Bible in order. Because the Bible wasn't written like that. It's not a book. It's 66 books with a slow revelation of the purposes of God. Why not start with the clearest final revelation, which is Jesus Christ? So the Gospels are where to begin. All right. Oops. Forgot to go to the next question. Next question. Um, This is from Blake. What happened in Gethsemane? Was Jesus Christ separated slash forsaken by the Father? In Gethsemane... um, what we What we read about, and I 'll get there not too long from now in my mark series um doing that on Mondays in Gethsemane. What we get is Jesus crying out, um, "If possible, let this cup be removed from me, nevertheless, not my will be done, but your will be done and we see Jesus to show that this isn't just like a a prayer of i'm going to teach you guys something with prayer right he's doing that too, but it's not just that he's agonizing. He's going through hard times. In fact, it says in Luke that he is sweating great drops of blood. And this is just to, dis- to demonstrate how stressed out he was. And this is a medical condition. You can look it up online. Actually, you're so stressed that your capillaries break and it gets into your sweat and you, have, you, you bleed sweat. Um, in addition, Jesus also says that he despairs unto death. So he is going through the most incredible stress you can imagine. Was he, though, forsaken by the Father? Well, there's nothing there about him being forsaken, is it? Was he, did did God, um, and, oh, and these are two very different issues. Was he forsaken by the Father, and was he separated from the Father? Well, those are two very different issues, aren't they? So, Jesus, in a sense, in my view, and I'm going to open a can of worms, so I'm just going to summarize real quick, and I get into this in my study on penal substitutionary atonement, P-E-N-A-L, for those who are, 13-year-old in their head, um, substitutionary atonement, which is has to do with penalty. I have a whole series on that topic, and I get into it in detail. But basically this, yes, Jesus was forsaken, not in the garden, but rather on the cross. Uh, you could include there's a type of forsakenness that happens in the garden because he's handed over to the enemies, right, as, as, as they take him. But this forsaken has nothing to do with God separating from the son, the father separating from the son. It just has to do with giving him over to a horrible fate, that's all I think that is going on here. And so if you look at the cross as being a horrible fate that, that the father gave the son over to, then in that sense, he's forsaken, but it's not total and it's not final. And that's how you have to qualify it. So even though he's given over, it's according to God's plan. It's, it's based upon not only the plan of the father, but also the will of the son and the yielding of the son to this plan. It's done for the salvation of souls. So it's not like he's just giving him over for nothing. And it's only temporary. Because he's going to go to the tomb. He's going to rise again from the dead. He's going to reign as Lord of all. And so it's, when you see it in that context, you could use the term forsaken. I would never say separated from the father, because I think that that is, uh, not only does the Bible not say that clearly, separated, like their persons are separate from each other now, that doesn't say that. But I would also say there's a problem with that because it theologically changes our understanding of who God is. Like we're actually making a comment here about the nature of the Trinity, so I would not separate the Father from the Son um, ontologically or in their very being on the cross. I don't think there's any need for that. I think people are going overboard. Uh, let's see. Question number 13, and I'm going to start moving pretty quick now because we are, how far in are, are we? 50 minutes in, I think. We've got 10 minutes. All right. Zoom in quick. Lightning round. Reflections. Uh, cretianus says, Hi, Mike, what does the verse, this verse really mean? Math, uh, Mark 16, verses 17 and 18. I grew up in the prosperity gospel and my family and 80% of my country is in it. I would really like help to open their eyes. Mark 16, verse 17 through 18. I gave a longer answer, I think on the same question the other day, though I couldn't tell you if it was in last week's video or a previous one. Let me give you a short answer on what this verse means. Um, these signs will follow those who believe. In my name, they will cast out demons. Okay, that's one sign. They will speak with new tongues, that's two. They will take up serpents, that's three. And if they drink anything deadly, it will be it will by no means hurt them, that's four. They will lay hands on the sick and they will recover, that's five. Some want to take one of these signs and make it like something every Christian has to do, like maybe tongues. Every Christian is supposed to do that. Others want to take a different one and and like serpents, every Christian is supposed to do that. So they do snake handling in churches. And, um, you know what they never do is they never drink deadly poisons, (laughs) right? They never drink deadly poisons. Like as if every Christian, why not just drink cyanide? I mean, if you're going to really prove, I mean, please don't do this. God forbid. This is like, this is exactly the temptation of Satan, right? You put yourself in harm's way. So we don't do that for the same reason. Jesus didn't jump off the temple. And he said to Satan, do not tempt the Lord, your God. He says, don't do it. Don't do that. But also I would say, here's my short answer. These signs if this text is original in Mark, I deal with that, with that last week, um, then these signs are to follow those who believe as a whole. These are things that you will see in the Christian church throughout history. You will see casting out demons. You will see speaking in tongues. Not everybody, but it does happen. You will see taking up serpents as Paul does in Acts when he unintentionally gets bitten by a snake and God protects him. Doesn't mean it always happens, but it is a sign when it does. Drinking deadly poisons, you will see God's protection over his people. Not every time, but it's a sign when it does. And then they'll lay hands on the sick and they'll recover every time? I don't think so. But it is a sign when it does. That's my short answer. I acknowledge that that's not sufficiently a good answer fully. But this is lightning round. Kyle Zin says, Mike, I know you're not a Calvinist. Are you an Arminian or a Molinist or none of the above? Um, I would say, short answer, I lean Molinist. Um... I haven't studied Arminianism enough that I don't think I fully understand it. I think originally I had sort of a Calvinist depiction of Arminians in my head. And while I still don't agree with them, I realize there's a little bit more complexity there than I had originally thought. But yeah, um, I don't think I agree with prevenient grace. But then if you define it a certain way, I do agree with it, right? If you define it as just the work of God reaching and calling people uh, by the gospel and the work of the spirit, then I, I would. But if you define it as partial regeneration, I, I wouldn't. But maybe they're not really meaning that. There's my answer. David Ellington says, uh, does Matthew 16, 6 verses 14 and 15 imply that forgiving others is necessary for salvation? Um, this is in the Sermon on the Mount. This is Jesus giving the Lord's Prayer. And at the end, he says, if you don't forgive others, you will not be forgiven. Um, it, it could be either way. It, it may actually be that um, you, you're you evidencing your forgiveness by forgiving others. Like First John says, how do we know that you know God? Like you love others. Because if you love God, you're going to love those made in his image. And so it's here, it's, it's seen as a result of salvation, loving others. It could be talked about as if you don't forgive, you won't be forgiven. This might be the representation of an unrepentant heart that was never saved to begin with. That may be the case. I don't think that the verse itself answers the question. I think we come to it with our theology in place already. I hope that answers you. Sorry for the speedy answer, but I'm I'm enlightening around. Judah Matthews says, Hi Mike, do you have any counsel on how to be discerning and grow in the Lord without constantly worrying about every new heresy and false teaching that crops up? My short answer is this, Judah, know your realm of responsibility. And I, I deal with this, I know this intimately, this issue intimately. Trust me, man. I see so many issues and things I want to deal with, but I'm just not called to do everything. I'm not the only guy in the body of Christ. I'm not the only body part in the body of Christ. And Just know your realm. Here's my little realm. Here's my little area of focus. I'm going to do that. And if that's not something I can handle, not something I'm called to handle, not something I'm focusing on, then I'm not going to deal with it, Lord. Somebody else will or or you'll deal with it. I'll pray about it. But you've just got to take things and get them off your plate so that you can focus on the handful of things that you can do well. That would be my encouragement. It's just not all on you, man. Focus on the things that are on you and do those well and you're not, you're not the only Christian. Thank God. <laughs> All right. Uh, Nala says, how do you approach a growing, church, a growing issue in your church where the Bible is not being preached on and the pastoral staff is beginning to go off base and the lead pastor bulldozes over people? Well, that last issue of bulldozing may mean that you can't approach it. Um, I would say start with private discussions with influential leaders who are the right people to go to. It's different in every church, but you're like, okay, maybe it's the lead pastor, maybe it's... Um, maybe it's the board maybe I come and I say hey but, but here's what often happens we, we, we just get irritated enough that we finally speak up and that's not wise wise is thinking things like hey can I go to the next board meeting and share something a concern I have with the board and the leadership I've been keeping it to myself and I want to share it in the right way and then you go to the board meeting and they give you 10 minutes and you've prepared every single thing you're going to say and you've thought about it and you've thought about who people you're talking to and then you share it in a thoughtful and wise way and it's there amongst multiple witnesses, but they're not just gossipers. These are leaders in the church. And then hopefully they'll deal with it and you leave it in the Lord's hands. That would be one way of, of approaching the issue. Do you see what I mean as being thoughtful, careful, and not just knee-jerk reaction? Now, if you have a pastor who's, a, who's the leader who does bulldoze over people, which is not terribly uncommon, sadly, um, then you may do all this and then you may, you may at the end say, well, I did my part and you now have to make other decisions spazzy jazzy says to what extent should we try to rectify our sins should two christians who fornicate then marry um i think i think two christians who fornicate should consider marriage but do they have to marry no and even in the old testament there was a situation where two unmarried people slept together and then the father uh, then the man is required to give the offer of marriage to the girl but the father can refuse it the father being her wise guardian Okay, think of fathers as people who love their daughters and then this passage doesn't bother you the way it does some skeptics Um, but the father's there is the guardian who can say no, this is not a wise marriage And so even then even under the law they could say no to it. So I think yeah, the the basic thought is this you you've you fornicated You should at least consider marriage Consider marriage, but do it with elders because you are obviously not wise in your life You're not making good decisions Do it with leaders who love you who can help you walk through this. Don't do it alone don't do that decision alone. Don't just try to throw a patch on the sin that has happened. Um, where was Jesus' spirit during the two days he was dead? And um, my personal opinion is that he was in the area of Abraham's bosom, and and maybe even visited the other side of Hades, which was to but not to suffer there but to proclaim his victory over sin and to reveal himself think of all these people that died before christ they died before the gospel came they died before full awareness of jesus was there um and so now even those saints waiting on god in in the place called abraham's bosom or basically the place of comfort in the afterlife for those who were covered by god that they are now getting the preaching and and they're learning what jesus has just done in the in the in the living world that's my thought Lillian McDonald, final question today, says, how do you, how do you stop bitterness and hatred from being in your heart if you've held onto it for years? Well, I can only speak to my own personal experience. Um, And when I find myself feeling bitter towards people, which I try to have a radar for it, but sometimes it sneaks up on you and it's like, you've got it and you're barely even aware of it. Other people know it, right? They know it, notice it right away, but we're sometimes just, we're, we see specks in other people's eyes, but not planks on our own eyes. It's just weird. So, my thought is this. The second I think a bitter thought, the second I have a bitter taste in my mouth, the second I begin to have a conversation with someone who's not there to complain about them, the second, just the very second, I'm aware of any level of bitterness towards anybody, I pray for that person, not about that person, for that person. Pray for those who curse you. Bless those, right? But bless those who curse you. Pray for those who spitefully use you and and persecute you. So, what I do is I ask for God to bless them. Not in a stupid namby-pamby way, right? Maybe they're a wicked person doing wicked things. Then I pray, Lord, bless them with the wisdom to turn their life around. I pray that you'd save them from the consequences of their sins, that you would show them the truth of Christ and that they would be changed. And that I would be a person who could, in love, you know, offer the same forgiveness to them that you're offering to them. And I pray that God would bless them. I pray that you you, you help their family and build their marriage and, and and take care of them financially, Lord. I just pray you'd you help that person. I pray for the person I'm upset with. And when I do that consistently, I have seen it change my heart. Like this has changed my heart towards people. And those who I was bitter with, I find it's gone. Now, it might take a while, but that is one very practical step. Every time you taste the bitterness in your heart, you pray for God to help them, bless them. You don't pray about them. You pray for them. That would be my counsel for you guys. And to end today out, we will close out with some cat cam. Here we go. Where is she? There she is. <laughs> How do you not love Moxie, right? Like most people's cats don't look so cute on camera, right? Anyway, I'm just saying. Sorry, all the other you guys have adorable cats. I just probably am biased. Um, anyhow, we will be live on Monday with Tim Stratton talking about the free will argument for God. This is like a philosophical argument you can learn about the existence of God. And if you guys are interested in more issues on prayer and healing and all that i'm dealing with more of that soon but i've also been dealing with it occasionally in my mark series going verse by verse through the gospel of mark now i'm mike although many people in the comment section think i'm mark um it's the mark series because i'm in the gospel of mark um i wonder if i'll be called zechariah at one day for doing the zechariah series i don't know we'll see all right lord bless you guys thank you so much for joining thanks to my mods for helping out and, and being there i really appreciate you guys as well take care